Hey, Jake. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Pretty good. It's good to talk to you again. Last week, I uh, noticed you didn't come. I know. I was busy. I was out. I had my daughter, and yeah. It's all good. Pastor Lynn filled in so well for you. She's fantastic. Uh, yeah, we're carrying on still with more uh, content and more ideas that we want to talk about as we want to wrestle with how to be a Christian through life's crossroads. We live in complicated times, don't we? We sure do, and it's ever getting more complex. And we want to be the kind of church and people that lean into these complexities and don't shy away from them, right? Yes. And so I guess one of the things that always makes me nervous in having a conversation like this is that people will uh, see controversy, look for controversy, name controversy, and then perpetuate controversy. And, um, and my hope is that as I talk to Dr. Mark Allen, a part of our church at Crossroads here, he teaches chemistry at UMBC uh, down the road. My hope instead is to de-escalate the controversy, try to build some understanding. Yeah, and for a frame of reference for some of our listeners that may not be from the area, UMBC is the school that knocked off number one Virginia a couple years ago in the NCAA tournament. That's true. And you know what Virginia got out of that? Two straight years of being the reigning national championship. So it worked out for <laughs> so it worked out for them, didn't it? It did. But yeah, I um really enjoyed the conversation. It's nice to hear from someone who's on the forefront of kind of sustainable technology and he's an inorganic chemist which I had to look that up before like kind of figuring out what that is and it's really cool to see that these types of people are on the forefront of helping us find sustainable energy as we move forward and progress as a people here on a shared space called earth um, and I liked how um, he incorporated his faith how he um kind of just shared his story and a lot of it resonated with me as someone who enjoys science but also grew up in the church as well. I think we have similar narratives. Absolutely and I particularly appreciated the way um, you know he said he was raised in, in a fundamentalist Christian household with a pastor father and um, he was not going to buy scientific narratives until he could uh, find them to be compatible with scripture, right? And so I was blown away that he did not start in science and make the Bible work in the stuff that he was learning, but he always wanted to bring the testimony of scripture with him to science and make sure that he was not having his scientific work overshadow what scripture was saying to him. Mm -hmm. And so when he comes to address things that are seen as controversial, like can a Christian believe in evolution, uh, his, his journey through that question uh, was a journey through scripture, not through the laboratory. Yeah, <clears throat> and I, I resonated with that. Um, growing up in the church, I was um, always taught that to kind of keep a, a leery eye about science, that there's a lot of narratives that science tries to overtake faith or undercut faith, and that if you start down that path of science, then um, your steps towards being agnostic or an atheist aren't too far behind. And there are some revelations in what um, Dr. Allen mentioned about how a good portion, if not most scientists, have some fundamental belief as being a theist. It may not be a Christian, but some belief that there is something more 
than what you can quantify in a laboratory that you can observe in nature, that there's something more going on. And um, that is one narrative that you don't hear very often. Usually it's the flip side that it's a bunch of godless, heathen, evil individuals in a laboratory concocting ways to undercut our faith, but that's just not true. <clears throat> and it was really helpful to hear that from him, from someone who's in the field in science with his very prestigious background and resume of what he's done, which he'll share in the podcast. Um, I really appreciated that. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny, we call him Dr. Allen, but to us, he's Mark, right? Yep. He, uh, he's involved in small groups, attends church, is uh, he's my neighbor. Uh, a father, <laughs> a neighbor to you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just just a regular guy and in um, so many ways, but but also a faithful churchman who uh, who really, really loves God with all of his heart and is also a scientist. And to hear from the heart of a man like that just blessed me. And, and I hope it blesses you as well as you listen to this. Well, hello, it's great to have you here today, and I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Mark Allen. Um, I'm going to give uh, Mark a chance to introduce himself and uh, talk just a little bit about uh, what it is he has studied and what he studies. Mark is a, a member here at, uh, at Crossroads, been coming to Crossroads for how long now? Since 2013, really. That's great. And so, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about um, what it is you've studied and what it is you do? And uh, So I'm... I'm a chemist. I'm an inorganic chemist. And so what I study primarily is, uh, is uh, inorganic materials that are relevant to technology. And I come at it from a very interesting approach because I use bio biology and biological molecules to try to interact with inorganic materials. Uh, for instance, biomineralization, like how you make bone, is an interesting material and it's an interesting interaction between proteins and, and lots of biological molecules and how that actually synthesizes your bone. Well, I take that out of nature and put it into, could you use biomolecules to synthesize uh, technologically relevant materials like lithium ion batteries or, or uh, solar cells? And can these biomolecules actually interact and synthesize, like repair very specific materials that could be useful for, uh, for the, for technology, technologically relevant purposes. Uh, you say all that, I know what all of those words mean, and I immediately start having like 11th grade anxiety, <laughs> like there's a test Sorry. coming. No, it's, it's all right, it's great. That That's really exciting stuff. And, and it sounds, um, I mean, it just sounds so much like the conversation that I, that I hear anytime I flip on the news of where we're going, like renewable energies and yes. technology and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, yeah. so you're right on the cutting edge of kind of where we're trying to head, huh? Well, I think that, I mean, right now, what's what's holding uh, the developing world back is access to energy and access to energy that can be generated on the spot and stored on the spot. And so I think that major challenges exist that, uh, that can be addressed by this possible interaction between biology and inorganic materials. Wow. And so you do this studying, uh, at least to this point, in the university setting. Yes. And uh, you have been a, a faculty member at UMBC. Yes. Is that correct? And yes, yeah, so I'm in the chemistry department there. I've been doing research there since 2012. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's been 
it took a long time before I started seeing a, seeing success, but now I've got a really nice set of, of biomolecules that are actually serving a good purpose for making lithium ion batteries better. That's amazing. And that's great because, um, twice in the last, um, uh, the last, uh, I don't know, two months or so, we've been woken up in the middle of the night at my house by our, our, all of our smoke alarms and carbon monoxide alarms. So anything you could do to make batteries last longer so I could sleep through the night. Stop the tweeting. Um, yes, uh, yes, I'm, I'm totally in favor. Um, and so uh, I, I also think, um, I think what you do is super fascinating, but I also think your education story is really fascinating. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Because you have gone to and been involved in some schools that uh, are, are pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, so I went to Temple University in the in the city of Philadelphia, and uh, then from there I I began doing undergraduate research there, um, and I started working on ferrofluids, which are like magnetic fluids. It was really really neat stuff. Um, but the professor that I worked for was moving from Temple University to become a professor at Montana State University, and so he said, "Hey, would you like to start grad school there?" And I said. After a couple months of considering, I said yes, <laughs> and uh, so then I, I moved from from Center City, Philadelphia, to Big Sky Country in Montana, and then I got my uh, my PhD there in inorganic chemistry, and then moved to the material science and engineering department at MIT, and so there I worked for uh, Professor Angela Belcher, and she was she's on she remains on the cutting edge of this bio bio-templated and bio-inspired materials uh, synthesis for technologically relevant materials. So it was really, really a fun experience being at MIT. And then um, after being there for four years as a postdoc, then I came here to UMBC. Wow, that's amazing. I, um, I, like I said, I made, I made that joke about my passing anxiety about high school science, but uh, I think I think science was was always my hardest subject. I kind of flew through the rest of them and had to put work in yeah. to get good grades in science. <laughs> and um, and I just am truly amazed at someone who who has the capacity to be able to do all of that kind of stuff, like PhDs, MIT postdoc. And so I just really, really am impressed by, by the sort of work that you've put in to get to this point in your life. Well, the hope is that it's also fun, right? Yeah. So I... I do what I think is fun. Yeah, that's great. Well, so so the um, the real reason that we're centering our conversation today, or what we're going to center our conversation around, is um, the idea of Christianity and science. And uh, you and I have had some interesting conversations about um, about your your faith in the scientific world. And um, I, I wanted to share with Crossroads and anyone else who's listening just a little bit about um, some of the some of the stories and some of the ways in which you've engaged science, developed in science, and yet remain a Christian and even utilize your faith as as a way in which to tell the story of God and to share your faith with others. Before we get too far in that, I want to tell you a story about eighth grade science. All right. <laughs> so. Um, I grew up very similar to you in, um, uh, your dad was a pastor. My, my dad was in the military, but we went to, um, kind of, uh, slow to develop Wesleyan style churches. I was in the church of the Nazarene, you were Wesleyan. And so, um, as 
especially in the 90s when I was kind of coming of age, um, science became this huge dividing line showing how Christian you could be, right? Like if you could deny science that tr showed <laughs> you truly put your faith in God. Yeah. And um, my mom, and I love my mom. My mom is just the best. But I was always frustrated with my mom that she didn't so much like read the room with me, but she read books. And if the book said something, then she was going to impose that on me. It drove me crazy. And so in eighth grade, we're told at the beginning of class that we're going to begin talking about evolution this year. And my mom's antenna shot sky high yeah. about that. And so she went and had a meeting with my eighth grade science teacher about, well, what exactly are you going to do and talk about this year? And she was so utterly horrified by the sort of things that we were going to do that any time the word evolution was going to make its way into the classroom, I was to go sit in the hallway. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. And so um, so I remember this playing out the most in that. Uh, do you remember do you remember those video games like sim city yeah, or now yeah. like the sims yeah. right there was one called sim earth which was essentially like a simulation of evolution or whatever and this was a big part of the curriculum in the middle of the year really? in eighth grade science was oh. that every student was given a week to play sim earth to see how evolution would play out and um i have no idea how that game goes because i wasn't allowed to play <laughs> i had to sit writing like lines about something else in science while everyone else was in the computer lab playing a video oh, game. That's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> you're probably, see, you're probably bitter against science. That's <laughs> probably, probably why it was my hardest subject, right? <laughs> science. <laughs> but this is, this is, I think, I think it's, um, mine may be extreme, but I think it's a fairly common story. Is, yeah. Yeah. For, for folks in the church, um, and so what I think we want to do today is try to work out a healthy relationship with science mm -hmm. while maintaining our, our robust faith in God. And of course, we can't get much further than scratching the surface today. But, um, but I think you and I um, have interests on two sides of the same coin. As a pastor, I am not afraid of science. I, I think science is great. It, um, it helps me keep my schedule stored in my pocket. Mm -hmm. It allows me to keep in contact with people of the church easily. Um, I go and visit people in the hospital hooked up to the most amazing machines that give them chances to uh, make it through what would most likely be terminal diagnoses mm -hmm. otherwise. Um, I drive cars that make 30 miles a gallon to get to the hospital. I mean, I, I, science blows my mind and it's integrated into so much of what we do day to day. And so I'm not interested in throwing science out. I'm interested into understanding science. Uh, you live on the other side of that coin. Science is the air you breathe. You go to a lab to work every day, and you're trying to tell folks around you uh, there are limitations to science. Science is not a god. There is a god. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so so in some ways, we're kind of moving in opposite directions to describe different things, but kind of living in the same space as one is a person who appreciate science and is a pastor and another who is a scientist but believes in God and puts your trust in Jesus. Well, that's the funny thing is that uh, contrary to popular belief, most scientists really are theists in some way. Um, and it's, there is this kind of eighth grade education that, that would tell you that science has all the answers. 
But once you go looking into those answers, you find out that there that it is still lacking. And <clears throat> there are simply unanswerable questions that scientists can't get to. And it's not that there's no there's there's no more information. They're still getting more information, but it's simply it's it's gone beyond a scientific question. Uh, for instance, uh, fundamental to it being called science is you have to be able to um, to make observations. You have to be able to make experiments, and you have to be able to test those experiments and generally reproduce those experiments. We're not recreating a cosmos. We're not remaking humanity. It's it's not a possibility to go into that, even though there are there are information being generated that is consistent with the the view that we have of a, of a big bang and and evolution and common descent. There are consistent ideas about it, but it can't go any further than that. Yeah, I, I went to a, a Christian college. I didn't go to a big school like Temple. Uh, very much a, a, a condensed, controlled environment where I went to college. And I told you the other day about how I took a class in geology because it was a liberal arts school. We had to take something every discipline. And having had my experiences of science where my mom freaked out through middle school yeah. and high school, I remember going to my geology class the first day and being blown away by the fact that my geology professor did a devotional before every class. But then I was equally confused as to how he would then talk about evolutionary development of rock and sed sediment and all of this kind of stuff. And, and I was I was told the lesson that it was like evolution did not exist. It was a um, it, it, it was a denial of God. And um, and my Christian professor is on the one hand reading the Bible to us and on the other hand talking about evolution. And that was really hard for me um, to rationalize all these stories I've been told to in that to that moment and to say, what is happening here? So could could you just briefly help me out and help our listeners out and talk about like you say most scientists are theists. My research has borne that out as well. I understand that that's the case. Um, so most scientists who talk about evolution believe in God, but I was told you can't do both. So what's that all about? How do we wrestle with that tension? Well, I think it's unfortunate that there is such rigidity on either side. Like there shouldn't be. Um, to me, personally, I, I try to find a consistent worldview. And so in order for me to find consistency, then I kind of have to acknowledge that some things are likely good explanations. And in a certain sense, scientists don't go for truth. They go for explaining what happens. And that's yeah, so, so science is, is almost like the writing, the narrative of the phenomena of this world, right? Yes. And so we want to just explain it in a way that we'll be able to better understand what might happen in the future. So we can make a prediction. That's what all theories are supposed to do is they explain what they currently observe so that they can explain the next thing. And that's what, uh, I mean, evolution is an incredibly important thing. It is one of those weird things that is both a fact and a theory. Mm -hmm. uh, just like gravity is both a fact and a theory. The fact is that objects attract one another. 
Um, any object with mass attracts one another. That's the fact of gravity. But the theory of gravity is that it happens in an inverse square uh, interaction and there's lots of mathematics involved. Uh, well, the theory of evolution and the fact of evolution, it's one of those things that certainly things adapt to their environment. No question about that. And everyone agrees on it. I heard this story. One of the things that blew my mind in terms of like coming to understand what I think scientists are talking about in terms of evolution was hearing about squirrels on each side of the Grand Canyon, that that before there was that split, they were probably just one community and the split they ended up on different sides, but over the amount of years the Grand Canyon was there, there was observable differences between the squirrels on each side. Yeah, that's like, weird. <laughs> that's weird, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because so the like, environments aren't that different. Right, right. And so I was like, okay, well, I understand how it is we have to adapt to what we're given mm -hmm. and that that could create physiological observable differences. And that's, that's not far off from talking about evolution, right? Right. So, uh, but so that is the fact of evolution, like the mm -hmm. fact that things adapt, um, and it ha and it adapts roughly through natural selection. And so, um, where it became a theory was in the speciation. So that was what Charles Darwin really defined as as the theory was that different species evolved from other species, and that remains a theory because it hasn't yet been observed that a species genuinely. Uh, became a brand new species or, or that any species actually split and formed right. and and the whole uh, like intermediary species and things like that those are all still challenges that have not technically been observed yet and this is this is the point at which christians start to struggle right because we have the belief and the understanding in scripture that says god created yes and so if if god created um then then what does that look like if humans didn't show up in the order that Genesis says, or kind of how we understand Jesus to have been pre-existent to time as we understand it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this is where Christians begin to struggle, but I think they kind of too quickly throw out the stuff we talked about to that point, right? which often kind of makes us, I think, end up looking silly because there is observable fact Right. And you don't have you don't have to say because we can observe these evolutionary pieces that God is not creator. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, well, I think that you do have to start from a, from a background that God is creator. Yeah. Uh, what I found challenging. Uh, so um, what I when I first began challenging what I believe or how I believe God created. Uh, was when I was reading Genesis. So mm -hmm. I, I was reading Genesis 1 through 3, all in one sitting. I just sat down and, and read it. And I don't know why I had never realized this before, but I just happened to notice that, so all of my life, I have been reading Genesis and I've been reading the whole Bible. Like my, my dad was a very fundamentalist pastor and we read the Old Testament a lot. Yeah. And so I can't believe that you went to Temple University to study science raised in the environment you were. <laughs> That's funny. So, I well, uh, yeah, I, I actually started. Well, it was because of my high school chemistry teacher that I went into science. So I went into chemistry. And so thank you, Dr. Or 
Mr. Rook. It's, uh, he was he was just a great a great chemistry teacher. Um, I actually found him on Facebook and and messaged him and said, "Hey, thank you for teaching me chemistry." That's great. That's <laughs> um, great. But yes, my dad was a fundamentalist pastor, and um, and so we read scripture a lot. Uh, we had daily devotions as a family and all and everything. And I don't know why I never put these things together, but I always believed that Adam had been in the Garden of Eden for a long, long time. And then eventually, after naming all the species or all the animals and after hanging out with God and uh, and being there for some time, then Eve was created. But Genesis 1 clearly says all that happened on day six. And it just, like, it's a simple, it, it was a simple thing. And in retrospect, it's incredibly simple. But for some reason that day, it just seemed to everything, everything kind of got all jumbled up. And I was like, wait a second. That couldn't have happened all in one day in the Garden of Eden. That's just too much to fit into one day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so there has to be something that was inconsistent there. And it was just a peculiar thing. So I kind of just mulled that over and I meditated on it for a long, long time. Um, and it wasn't that I was throwing away uh, scripture. It was I was really trying to understand what scripture was was saying and what was the purpose of what it was saying. And um, and that was really that was really the start of my beginning to say, well, scripture says this and I kind of moved away from a true literalist interpretation of scripture, but I still take it incredibly seriously. Mm -hmm. And so if anybody asks me, then I say, no, I don't take it literally, but I do, ta do take it very seriously. And what you believe about scripture is an incredibly serious thing. Yeah. Don't take any of it lightly. That's right. And it's also important to understand that as scholars have tried to understand these chapters of Genesis, one of the first things they try to say is no one wrote this or read this as a science text. Mm -hmm. This is not what this is meant to do. Right. It's a relatively recent thing that we started taking it like this is how it happened. Right. That's right. And so one such theory that uh, really blows my mind, Mark, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but um, many people who observe these chapters notice that it seems as if they're two separate creation accounts, that mm -hmm. chapter one is one story of creation and chapter two is the same story told in a different way because mm -hmm. there's a lot of overlap and mm -hmm. so one such theory that has come around that, that i find really compelling i don't know that i think this is what happened but it's compelling is that um the exiles in the later old testament had genesis with them and they began to hear this babylonian creation story about marduk the mm -hmm. god of babylon who was just a chaos agent and they would hear this story in Babylon of just life came out of chaos. Mm -hmm. And the Jews had Genesis, but not that they had the story of Adam and Eve, right? And so some people think that Genesis 1 was edited onto the front of Genesis during the exile to tell the story of a God who creates order, mm -hmm. not a God who creates chaos. chaos. Yeah. And so there is some overlap 
between the Babylonian ancient mythology of Marduk's creation out of chaos with the sort of pacing of Genesis 1 that shows, no, Yahweh is a God of order and creation and beauty. That and it's good. It's good. Yes, that's right. Which is the theme over and over. This is good. This is good. This is good. Whereas Babylonians lived in chaos. They loved war. They loved hedonism, all this kind of stuff. Chaos, 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 because that was their generation story. But the Jews lived differently because they believed that their God created out of order. And so they weren't even trying to say, well, this is exactly how it does. But they were trying to give a testimony to a chaotic world of a God of beauty and order and creation instead, which... I mean, I think we're used to the idea of telling our story in a cultural norm so that people understand something that's better than what they're currently living. And so if this theory is correct, and I don't know that it is or not, you can begin to understand Genesis 1 as not a science text, but a testimony. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, and that, that that allows us to not see them in competition with each other, I think. Yeah, when you stop holding it up to the standard of what we've been taught that science is, then you can kind of get to what is the truth that is being told to me in these stories and how is it supposed to impact my life? Like the fact that God does have a specific interaction with humans and elevates us up to being in his image, that's a big deal. And, and that's something that I think as a Christian, you have to believe that we are created in God's image. And that alone endows all humanity as something special. All people are special because God said that. That's when right. He had defined that you are now and created in my image. Absolutely. And I love that you say that so much because I think our attempts to fit Genesis 1 and 2 into science or hold the lens of science over it has really caused us to miss the beauty of what's actually right. happening here. And I think you've nailed it. We have been created in the image of God as an act of love for the sake of us to live in his good world. Right. Right. So it must have been jarring as someone in the midst of deep chemistry discipline. You're years in now and you read Genesis in this way and it blows your mind. Oh, my goodness. Um you're telling me that up until that point, like you're you're in doctoral work, postdoctoral work, and you're still struggling to rationalize these concepts of evolution with your reading of scripture, mm -hmm. and um, and scripture's winning for you. Mm -hmm. That's wild. I, I mean, that's wild. Not because it's not good. That's good, but that's not the story we hear no. about scientists. No. Um... Yeah, it was so a, a literalist understanding of scripture was still winning. And so even up to that point, I was still um, thinking of the genuine six days, young earth creation. The whole earth is is only 5000 years old. And that's not really and that's still incomplete because my dad, for being a fundamentalist, he kind of took that Peter passage of a day is as a thousand years. And so he kind of said, oh, it probably took longer than 4,000 years for us to get to where we are, but he still took a literal understanding of Genesis. Yeah. And so that is such an interesting thing about Christians trying to find their way. I mean, let's be honest and fair. They're trying to find their way, even in the most strict of places, <laughs> of how to rationalize this science that's coming about that we all recognize, like, 
we want the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so trying to live in this tension of taking scripture seriously, proclaiming Jesus as Lord, but also participating in a world where science is dominating and frankly, really doing some cool stuff. Right. right? And um, it's just, I think, really good discipline work for us to get to the point of trying to rationalize all those things in a way that doesn't ask us to throw the baby out with a bathwater on any of them, mm -hmm. right? And it's hard, it's difficult, but I'm particularly interested in the way you're describing not reading the Bible literally. Now that's probably a scary concept to some people, maybe not all, because where's the line, right? Mm -hmm. We hear people talk about slippery slopes and it all is. of that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but but I think I think like if you were to walk and find a good Jewish scholar today and think about him with like yarmulkes and beards and years and years and years of study, yeah. I don't think they read the Old Testament literally, right? They've been taught to read these stories as conversations. Mm -hmm. They've been taught to read these stories as, as truths, as, um, as ancient wisdom, mm -hmm. as God's interaction with humanity. Right. Right. And, um, there is, there are ways forward and, and, you know, maybe it's my job as pastor to continue working with people to help them see this with clear eyes, but I really appreciate the understanding that you've come to of taking scripture seriously but not treating it as literal. Right. And so it was in, it was in Genesis one, two, and three that you made this discovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very, very like, it was jarring at the time, but it really did. Like it was one of those aha moments that just kind of said, Oh, you know, it can all fit. And for me, getting a consistent worldview is incredibly important. I wanted to I wanted to be able to say, all right, I believe this and it allows me to still believe this. Um, and once once I got that, then it just said, OK, we can have consistency in all of in, in every area of my life because I was a scientist and I'm doing this research. And I can't just say, you know, the fundamental explanations of how science came about is wrong. Um, while I'm also saying that the fund that there are these difficult things to line up in my, my Christian worldview. And I, and I don't like wearing two hats. I like just being a complete person. Yeah. And so I, I, I couldn't get it to add up without kind of, well, making some modifications in what I fundamentally believe. Right. But again, and this is this is really important, and I think it cuts against the straw man of what scientists are like. You made this shift in Bible study, right? You didn't make this shift in a lab where you conformed the Bible to you, right? Yeah, I did. I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't start with science. I didn't go and try to say, all right, I'm going to use science to prove the Bible or disprove it. I think that those are silly things to try to do. Um, but I did use scripture to say, all right, what is what? what is scripture actually trying to tell me to make me, you know, love God and love my neighbor. And that's kind of the point. That's, that's a large point in what scripture is moving you toward is how do you become the human being that God created you to be? Uh, and what, what, and what's that supposed to look like? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think 
for me as a pastor, what's deeply important about looking at, at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's so many interpretations out there. I mean, just you put 20 people in a room, you probably find 19 different opinions of what's going on there. Okay. And, um, I, I tend to be pretty comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. I think that there's right and wrong, certainly. And there will probably in that room, I could probably find five people that'd be like, no, you're just wrong. Um, probably maybe three people. I'm like, no, you've gone too far the other way. And then like, there's about 10 or 12 ways to think about that left. And I'm like, well, that's fairly compelling. And um, a lot of people don't like to live in that tension. I get that. But what is super important to me is that we walk away from these texts and these scriptures as saying, God is creator, right? God is creator. And that's one of the really defining things after your realization, you look back at these texts and you saw as well, right? That God is creator and outside of space and time. Yeah. And, and then that allows you to do your scientific work inside of space and time seeing that God is like the force that has created this phenomenon that you study, right? Right. But yeah, so that's, that's exactly right. I, I, I kind of, uh, when I finally, like I'm all this over for a long, long time and I, and I used all of scripture. Like I didn't just go Genesis one and three. I, I, I read the whole Bible and, and I try to get a consistent view about what is it, what is it, what is it saying? What did Jesus believe about the creation events? And Jesus talks about creation very, very frequently. Uh, Paul talks about creation uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And so what is it all saying that allows for me to still have a consistent worldview? And what do you hear in the New Testament when you read those folks well, relative to the signs of the Old Testament? So, I, yeah, so another kind of epiphany happened when I was just reading uh, Jesus responding to people saying, hey, why are you working on the Sabbath? And Jesus's response was, you know, my father has been working every day until now, and I too am working. And, you know, it's it's just a one-off line. And and it's like, that's that's the whole context is the, the these people say you shouldn't be working. And Jesus says, you know, think about this in a broader perspective. Um, and when I read that immediately, my mind went to the Colossians passage it says, by him, meaning the word or, or Jesus, uh, by the word of God, all things were created. And through that word, all things are sustained. And it just made me realize, you know, that number one, God never took a day off. And number two, that was it's, it's a bigger thing than just saying, oh, 4000 years ago, God created or even to say 14 billion years ago, ago God created. Because you have, well, uh, it, it was, it just became a much bigger, bigger problem than that. And so the way that I came, came to understand it is that a consistent worldview is to say that God didn't just create matter. He didn't just create us and he didn't just create the earth or, or the stars or stuff. He created everything. And if he created everything, he created at one moment, space, time, energy, and matter. And space is a thing. It's not just an absence of matter. It's a, it's a thing. Um, so those four things came into existence at the creation event. And once you know that he created time, then God has to exist outside of that entire creation. And if he, if he exists outside of time, then all of these things 
make perfect sense. Uh, you can say that there's this that that the Earth is 14 billion years old, but that's not, that's 14 billion years inside of time. God has been in existence for all in infinite amount of time, and scientists have a big problem with the word infinity, with an understanding of of infinity. Um, it might seem like oh that's just numbers keep on going and then they go in the other direction, but it's much more than that. It's there is no end to it. There's, but more than, more important than there's no end to it, there's no start to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and like scientists spend careers just mauling over an understanding of infinity that they never get an answer to because it literally just never starts and never stops. It's immeasurable, right? It's an Science immeasurable thing. measure. And so infinity is technically a supernatural thing because there is nothing in nature that is infinite. We kind of place the origin of the cosmos at about 14 billion years. That's a long time, but it's not infinity time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah, there's, there's no end either. So <laughs> no matter how big it seems, yeah, God is bigger. Right. It's amazing. Uh, you said something that's uh, controversial in there. You said it in passing, but I think it's worth you know, moving back and talking about it. You said God never took a day off, which of course Genesis like, says. explicitly says God right. did take a day off. One of the struggles with reading scripture is that if you read enough of it, eventually you read two things that are in absolute contradiction with each other. Right. So what do you do with it? Man, Genesis 1 says, and on the seventh day, God rested. And Jesus says, oh, my father and I have never taken a day off. Right. <laughs> Well, Jesus, have you not read Genesis? Come on, buddy. <laughs> it says you took a day. It says you took a day off, right? And so um, I love, I mean, just as a pastor and theologian, I love digging into these scriptures that yeah. are in argument with each other. And one of the ways that I rationalize this is that, well, what, what is the um, theological concept of Sabbath? Why mm -hmm. does God ask his people to take Sabbath? Well, because he wants us to understand that, um, we're not the ones who make the world run. Right. He wants us to learn about rest. He wants us to learn about trust. And so if we work for six days and take a Sabbath on the seventh, we implicitly understand that God is at work right. on our behalf. Right. And so um, that Genesis text seems to be about teaching us to model taking a day off. But we then immediately turn around with our own mouths and say, God is at work on the days that we take right. off and we <laughs> yes. learn that God is working on our behalf. Right. And then Jesus then justifies in the new Testament, doing things the Pharisees were scandalized by yeah. that, um, that he is God. And the Pharisees know that God is at work on their Sabbath day yeah. because they're learning that God is the one who makes the sun go around, sustains all things. Right? right. And so Jesus is really saying there in another way, I am God. Right. Yeah, don't lose the picture of what this is really saying. And, and then Jesus responded with, man was made, or the Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for the Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's when you get that and kind of add all of these things in, then it just helps to kind of come down on, all right, what was the purpose of God saying it? Well, it is incredibly meaningful for us. Like, I, I, I'm a strong believer of, you know, the law is is really instructions on how it, it is best to live your life. And if you don't live your life, 
in a certain way, then you probably aren't going to have the fruitful and abundant life that you probably were intended to have by God. So he gave us these instructions. And so if you follow them and not be too hard on yourself when you fail to follow them, then you're probably going to work well. Yeah, that's right. And uh, any kind of um, scientific looking back on the law has often produced a, a sort of primitive understanding of cleanliness that leads to health and all yeah. sorts of things that were shockingly ahead of their time. They, they may not make our life more abundant now, but they were given explicitly for a time thousands right. of years ago when they didn't have antibacterial soap in their right. Right. And so like even understanding that is interesting and helpful. Right. Uh, yeah. We, we know very well that you have to cook pork completely. And if you don't, there are some major diseases that you really don't want to have. Yeah, that's right. And, and so um, how do you describe a meat that makes people sick? Well, it's unclean. Right. It's unclean. <laughs> yeah. By definition. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, as time moves along and we figure that sort of stuff out, you begin to understand God's sheet from heaven and Paul and Peter arguing about, about not hanging these ancient laws on the new believers mm -hmm. that... What's central to new believers is that they they uh, they live religiously pure to God, not that they follow all of the laws of the wandering people of the desert. Right. All these years ago. And, yeah. And so so continuing to understand how God is working and moving us, even scripture does that. Right. Which is fascinating. Yes. It's almost like evolution, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, seems it really consistent. is. See, I, I, I like the word evolution. Evolution comes from a word meaning unrolling of the scroll. And um, and I like that kind of context. Of, so evolution's been high, the word evolution's been hijacked by scientists. But if you look at it as the unrolling of a scroll, as in there's text that's written there and it's being revealed gradually, then I, I like that kind of way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, because that isn't a scientific thing. That's all of life. All of all of your theology, all of those things are coming to new understandings of ancient phenomena. Yeah. And I and I just yeah. think that that's a neat one, way of one of my criticisms, criticisms of fundamentalism is that um, it it tends to be, it seems to me, a people looking for like a very prescribed way of life so <clears> that they don't get out of line. Mm -hmm. The New Testament is filled with people who are instead walking in step with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's much more scary than having a very, very prescribed way of life. Right. But Paul is constantly saying, don't live by the law. The law can't save you. Right. And fundamentalism is almost like trying to write that law once more. Thou shalt not, thou shall, thou shalt not. Whereas the New Testament, which we love, I mean... Find a Christian that doesn't love the New Testament, right? They're more scared by the Old Testament. Right. And yet they're often trying to say, well, this is the very narrow way to live. But the real scary, faithful way to live is to receive the Bible as uh, the stories of God that are authoritative, but then shape it to understand who God is so that you can hear God's voice in your yeah. everyday life. And treat them like you're describing, like the scroll is still being opened and your life is being written by the way you're following the norms of the scripture in a way that's in step with the spirit moving forward. And my hope is that that's more the way that we're learning to, 
but but that takes work that takes mm -hmm. prayer that takes scripture reading that takes listening to the voice of god whereas it's much easier to write a few rules and make sure you live inside of those narrow rules yeah. that's more comfortable well i mean if you're a christian for a long enough time you kind of realize that you're you have a personal faith and the whole point in a personal faith is that that is god ministering to you and telling you what you should do yeah i think that's important yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think so too and um that also means that we need to learn to trust one another when we say god has spoken to me right, right? and um and this is also what I think the church does, right? Like, Mark, if you come to me and say, God has said to me to do um, a massive amount of cocaine and to cheat on my wife, I come along and say, that's probably not what God is saying to you, buddy. <laughs> right? So, like, that's why we do this in community, right? Because right. we do have a personal connection with God. But then we also are in um, under authority of the church as right. well so that we don't just create our own image of God that just tells us we can do whatever we want. And that's where that's where yeah. consistency comes in. Yeah, you have to get and, and I, I like the Wesleyan idea of the you know the tetragram, whatever, whatever it is, yeah. the, the four pillars, whatever. Yeah. Um, but those things help to guide into a consistent view. Yeah, and those um, the, the, it's typically called the quadrilateral. Yeah, and I would say it, the quadrilateral. Yeah, yeah it would be uh, <laughs> scripture, which is seems right. primary in yes. Wesleyan churches. Scripture, and then the other three that inform our reading of it are tradition, tradition experience, and um, reason. Yeah, yeah, which sounds scientific. It is scientific. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good thing. Yeah, I think have so. reason. I totally agree as well. <laughs> and so I want to kind of wrap this up. We've talked about so many things. Um, but the one last thing that I want to cover before we head out of here is um, there's a lot of straw mans about what scientists are like. You know, mm -hmm. there was that movie not too long ago, um, God's Not Dead, that had the science professor that came oh, in yeah. and tried to try to like prove Christianity wrong on day one. And yeah. Well, Christian. he was a philosophy professor. Philosophy professor. Yeah, okay, fair not enough. Not a science professor, but go ahead. But we get this idea <laughs> that um, that there are these godless liberals in universities trying to tear down Christian faith. You're telling us that um, you know most scientists actually are theists in mm -hmm. one way or another, which has been my experience as well, and I believe that to be true. And so we kind of have these straw mans in the church of scientists Um but what's a more accurate picture of what science is wrestling with? What is it that they struggle with Christianity and theism? And um, and how can we have a more um, generous understanding of what's happening in the discipline of science when most of us really don't understand what's going on over in that walk of life? Um, so... The way that I the way that I look at it is to recognize the limitations of science. And I wish that more scientists would recognize the limitations of science. Uh, meaning science, see science, the word scientist is a relatively recent term. It was developed by William Ewell in 1835. And so before that, it was called natural philosophy. And I liked that term because it it's uh, nature and it's philosophy. So it is, uh, so philosophy comes from loving, loving knowledge or loving wisdom and, but specifically loving wisdom regarding nature. And so it puts that limitation. It, it, it embeds the limitation of science inside of the, of the phrase where it is limited to nature. We look at nature and try to explain how nature is going to behave. 
we don't look at supernatural things and try to explain how supernatural things uh, behave. Um, and so and in, in a technical sense, so just to step on toes a little bit, theology technically isn't a science because it is studying a supernatural phenomenon. It is done scientifically, but it's not technically a science. Right, yeah. And like ology, we think that that means science or whatever, but it really comes from the Greek word logos, which right. means theology is speaking about God. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so if you start with looking at science and just limit it to what science is supposed to do, then it's easy to kind of say, okay, there are limits to what I can understand. And those limits are inside of nature. They don't, they aren't even intended to be outside of nature. So the way that I kind of like a, a story that I would think relating to, uh, to uh, Jacob's ladder. And so if a scientist were walking along and saw this heavenly vision of, of angels ascending and descending, the, sci the, the human in them would say, oh, those are angels ascending and descending in them. The scientist in them has to say, what are all the natural phenomena that could explain this? Mm -hmm. And that's what they have to do. They cannot explain angels descending and descending. That is supernatural. But they can say, all right, are there gas pockets? Is, are we hallucinating? What's going on that might have explained this? That is natural. And that is a limitation of science. While everybody else is going to say, dude, those are angels. They're just going up and down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're going to heaven and coming back down. The scientist has to say, no, I can't accept that as the explanation. I have to try to use nature to make the explanation. And, um, and even the scientist is going to say, yeah, it, it, all right, you're right, it is angels, but I still have to give a scientific explanation. Yeah. And, uh, and so they can't, they simply can't take that next step. Yeah, yeah. Because so, something is happening. Something happening. is happening. Right. And, and science's desire is to explain phenomena. Right. right. Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. That's great. And so that so if you tease that out a little bit, you can begin to see not too far down the road why it is that scientists aren't necessarily against the faith. Right. But because they can't testify, hey, those are angels, it sounds like they are. Right. Well, I mean, one thing that I'm very cautious about is that you don't want to kind of develop a theology that is a God of the gaps type of a mentality where, oh, uh, evolution is happening and then, oh, this thing came up and so God has to step in. You have to prevent, you have to not do that. That's a bad thing to do. You can't just say, oh, this is an unexplained thing, so we have to add, insert God. Uh, a much better way, or at least what I have done, is God has never not been involved, but God exists outside of time. And so God started a process and the process had in mind a a human who is capable of relating with god and it's probably not the human that we currently are it's a human who is much more like jesus much more thoughtful of living outside of oneself and we have no we we don't yet have that understanding of how we are going to change in the future but we know that we are changing yeah. And uh, certainly society is changing. Certainly everything else is changing. So why wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. 
which then brings us all the way to the end of the Bible, which at the end of Revelation, what we're given is this imagination that, that the garden will be restored. Right. And Jesus, we're told over and over, is the son of man. And we know that Genesis tells us about sin and the end of Revelation seems to be an undoing of sin that we would be like Christ. Right. Which Finally uh, be in that. Yeah, absolutely. Final and so, position. So, yeah. How we get from here to there. Well, that is a task that theology and science are both <laughs> trying to wrestling with and right. trying to understand, and we're not there yet. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, as we wrap up, I, I'm just thinking already, my guess is that I've not even thought of questions that have come up. Listeners are probably thinking uh, about things that didn't occur to me. And so if you want to type in the uh, comments or chat box or send a message in if you have any questions, um, if we're missing something or there's something we should dig into deeper, Mark, I, I'm wondering if, uh, if we do get some questions, if I could reach back out to you and ask you to join again and try to delve into those questions, because I have a feeling you've got some great answers to questions I can't even come up with. And I've got great questions too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Thank you so much for joining me. And, and I hope this has been uh, an enjoyable time for you to listen and to think about the, the convergence of God's word, theology, and science. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Through Life's Crossroads. This has been a ministry of Crossroads Church with Pastor Jake and Pastor Tim. We encourage you to continue to engage with us online throughout the week on Facebook at Crossroads Church of the Nazarene and also on Instagram, Crossroads Naz Church. Thanks for joining us for this episode.